Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Thanks, Joe. Thanks so much. And once again, good morning. Glad you're here this morning. I want to welcome, I suppose, our much larger online audience in the next few days, uh, since many of you are traveling and you'll be connecting with us. It's an interesting day today, isn't it? Not because of the time change or March break, those, those, though those are significant. It's the weather uh, that's so significant to me today. All of us who live in the north, I know a lot of you who listen online don't understand what we're talking about, but we who live in Canada, in, in, north, in the north here, uh, when we go through winter, winter is fine, some of us love it, some of us hate it, but something happens by mid-February or March. When you've had a really bad winter, we haven't this year, but when you've had a really bad one, an intense one, every once in a while there's a, a day of spring. You know what I'm talking about? It's sort of almost like a fluke. Mid-February, early March, this day comes where it's, it's like plus five or plus ten. And, and suddenly, I notice this environmentally, everyone changes. Everyone gets happier. People start wearing shorts, though they shouldn't be. You know what I'm talking about, right? They, they, they walk their dogs. I've watched it actually happen in our own staff. The morale in our staff literally changes because of the day. And I think the reason is simple. It gives hope. We're we're in the middle of winter, and when we suddenly get a day of spring, it reminds us that winter is not the end. Even we who love winter, every once in a while, need the out. And days like this, and it's actually a day like this today, they suddenly begin to remind us that spring is coming, and after spring, there's this thing called summer that so many of us long for, especially up here, since we have such short periods, of course, of heat. You watching in California have no clue what we're talking about, but up here, we get it. And I was reflecting on weather. I was reflecting on winter and spring and summer And that analogy stuck with me as I prepared today's message out of Philippians chapter 3. If you've got your Bible, a physical one, or if you'd like to turn on virtually, you can do that to navigate. We'd love you to go to Philippians chapter 3. We're in the second half, starting in verse 12. The story that we've been going through in the book of Philippians is one of joy and suffering. And the story continues today. It's a story of hope. We know this. It's a story of deep sacrifice. It's a story of joy, a story of transformation. It's actually a story of the unnatural breaking into the natural. And the reason why I brought up spring is this. Really, this story that Paul is painting, he's speaking into the life of that congregation and and into us. It's like spring, where the deadness of winter is slowly changing, slowly ebbing away, where life once had been and then seemed removed for a period is coming back. This story is a story of where spring will grow and grow in strength and culminate in a summer, a summer that has not yet come, but is coming so soon. Now for Paul, our winter spiritually is living life without the Son of God. Spring is that that time when we meet him for the first time, like we saw in the video, and we begin to grow in him. Actually, spring for the Christian is our existence right now. And then summer is when he will come back, when he will break back into full creation and make all of creation, seen and unseen, what it was supposed to be as it was in Eden. This is the center of what Paul begins to speak into the Philippian church and into, and into us today. Now, we left Paul last week with his grand cry, his summary of what the Christian life looks like as we live in spring. And it's this, it's Philippians 3.10. 
He says, I want to know Christ. I, yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attain the resurrection of the dead. He says, this is the resume of every Christian on earth. This is the heartbeat of a normal Christian life. Here is the mission statement of every Christian on earth, no matter who they are or where they've come from. Here's a question this morning as we begin. Is this you? Does this description summarize your Christian walk? This is not meant for super Christians who sit in first class with Jesus. This is all of us. We are called, remember like I preached last week, Paul knew Jesus more than any of us in this room, and yet he continues to say, I want to know Christ more. I want to walk in the power of his resurrection. In other words, I have an intimate, dynamic understanding of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not resisted in my life. He is welcomed more and more. Fear will not control my view of him. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. He says, I will willingly participate in Jesus' sufferings. He says, I want to die a death like Christ. In other words, other-centered, and I want to have the resurrection of the dead. That is the grand summary of a normal Christian life. This desire that he describes, this experience, this call, shows why so many around us shake their heads in disbelief at our movement. They sit with us and yet do not believe. It was the famed preacher, A.W. Tozer, who got it this way when he said, a real Christian is odd in so many ways. He feels supreme love for someone he's never met. He talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see. He expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another person. He empties himself in order to be full. He admits he's wrong so he can be declared right. He goes down in order to get up. He's strongest when he's weakest. He's richest when he's poorest. He's happiest when he feels worst. He dies so he can live. He forsakes in order to have. He gives away so he can keep. He sees the invisible. He hears the inaudible. And he knows which passes supposed knowledge. And the world says you're all crazy and we say, well, yes, of course. (laughs) I want to know Christ. I want to know his resurrection. I am willingly going to lay down what I think I have the right to do in this life because I want to participate in his sufferings. Now, when we read that amazing statement by Paul above, We need to stop very quickly because instead of seeing it for what it is, a journey, an outworking of a calling, the marks of an already existing relationship, we could, and many churches have, made the terrible mistake of thinking or believing that Paul was actually declaring that he had arrived, that he was perfect. He had arrived to spiritual perfection, and this misunderstanding could lead us down a path that would rip the very joy out of our souls and would destroy our church. It's the dark path called perfectionism. Paul quickly says these words, have I got all this right? Have I arrived? Am I what I'm going to be when I face Jesus? Not at all. That's why he says in verse 12, not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I have not arrived, he says. I have not obtained. I am not perfect. And by the way, I will not be perfect until Jesus returns. Paul, with intention, tells us that my spiritual journey is very incomplete. But here's what I'm going to do as I live in spring. Here's what I'm going to do as I wait for the coming not yet. 
He uses images from war and sports from his day to drive home his thoughts to that audience. He says, I press on. An athletic metaphor, who's, it's a runner whose every muscle and every thought, every nerve is focused on one goal. It's Jesus. He says, I take hold. It's a military term to pursue another army with all intention and passion to destroy them. And Paul says, why do I do all of this? Why is my life obsessed with Jesus? Why am I living for Jesus? Why do I have joy in Jesus? Why do I suffer for Jesus? Simple. I press on and I take hold for one reason. Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now do not miss this this morning. And you watching or listening online, do not miss this. This is the grounding of our faith. Jesus, he would tell us, came for me when I was dead spiritually. When I didn't love him, when I hated him, when I hated his followers, when I thought I was just fine, he grabbed me. I was called, I was elected, I was confronted, I was grabbed. Just as God called Abraham, just as God out of sovereignty decided Israel and not another nation, God called me. In love, in mercy, in kindness, in power, he took hold of me. I mean, this is the most powerful image of salvation. Jesus took hold of me, Paul would say. He came for me when I was not even looking for him. God called me. He elected me. He saved me. He forgave me. Now, never forget Paul's own story. Last week, we heard him give his grand resume that he used to hold up in front of the mirror and say, I'm just fine, thank you. The resume he'd hold up and show his friends and his family. And even he would hold up to God's face and say, I'm great with you. But then God came in and took hold of him and broke him to his very core, which actually produced outlandish joy. Paul, if you read the book of Acts, the first 30 years of our movement, at least three times refers to his encounter with the living Jesus, where Jesus grabbed hold of him. And one of them is recorded in Acts 26, verse 11. He's speaking actually to a king, King Agrippa, and here's what he says. For a time, this is Paul speaking, I thought it was my duty to oppose this Jesus of Nazareth with my whole might. Backed with the full authority of the high priest, I threw these Christians, these believers, I had no idea they were God's people, into Jerusalem's jails, right and left. And whenever it came to a vote, he wrote, I voted for their execution. I stormed through their meeting places, bullied them into cursing Jesus. I was a one-man terror, obsessed with obliterating these people. And then I started on towns outside of Jerusalem. One day on my way to Damascus, armed as always with the papers from the high priest, authorizing my actions, right in the middle of a day, I love that, in the middle of the day, a blaze of light, light outshining the sun, poured out of the sky on me and my companions. Oh, King, he says, it was so bright. We fell flat on our faces. Then I heard a voice in Hebrew say to me, Saul, Saul, why are you out to get me? Why do you insist on going against the grain? And I said, well, who are you? Interesting word, master. The voice answered, I am Jesus. I am the one you're hunting down like an animal. But now, up on your feet, I have a job for you. I've handpicked you to be a servant and a witness to what's happening today and to what I'm going to show you. I'm sending you off to open the eyes of outsiders so they can see the difference between dark and light and choose light. To see the difference between Satan and God and choose God. I'm sending you off to present my offer of sins forgiven, a place in a family, inviting them actually into the company of those who begin real living by believing in me. Paul says, I have joy. 
and I willingly suffer. My life is about Jesus because he took hold of me, and now because I'm walking in this new relationship and this new life, this springtime, since winter is over for me and late spring has come, I also want to share that summer is about to dawn. He says, brothers and sisters, verse 13, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead. He says, look, I'm free. And by the way, this should be a moment for many of us to reflect on this morning. He says, I am free. I'm not letting my pre-Christian past have power over me. I will openly talk about it, but I will not let the past dominate and have authority in my present Regret, shame, guilt do not have place for me. For Jesus took all I should be condemned for, and it has been removed. He actually would tell us, I actually believe, not just intellectually, but emotively, that when Jesus said it's finished, it's finished. But there's more to this passage that many don't catch. He would not just say that my pre-Christian past does not have authority over me. He also would clearly say, I will not rest on what I've done in the springtime, in the name of Jesus. I will not spiritually retire. I will not allow what I did at a different time in my Christian walk to be something I continually go back to, like the golden age, the good old days, you know, when I did that for Jesus. And D, in this point, in this point in his life, just shut down. He says, I will not let my pre-Christian past, nor will I let the good things I've done in Jesus' name actually stop me. I will continue to follow Jesus until he takes me. Bringing this idea home, so very close home, one pastor preached these words to his church. He said, some of the most unhappy people I've met or I've ever known in church, outside of church, live their life always looking over their shoulder. What a waste, he writes. Nothing back in your past can be changed. I mean, what's in the past? Well, there's only two things. Great attainments and accomplishments that could either make us proud by reliving them or indifferent, keyword, indifferent by resting on them. Or there's failures and defeats that cannot help but arouse feelings of guilt and shame. Now, why in the world would any of us, he preached, go back to that quagmire? I've never been able to figure this one out, he said, by recalling those inglorious, ineffective events of yesterday. Our energy is sapped for facing today. Rehearsing those wrongs, now forgiven by Jesus' grace, derails us and demoralizes us. There are few joy stealers more insidious than past memories that haunt our mind. And then he preached, and Paul would say to us, forget your past. Now, does he mean forget it, don't ever access it? No. What he means is it may not have authority over your today. So many of us sitting in this room and online as Christians are not joy-filled Christians because our past is bigger than the God we supposedly worship. And Paul comes and says, I will not let my past have power over me. And remember, this is a man who was at the height of his religious experience and also would have the guilt of murdering Stephen and possibly other Christians on his own hands. And he still can say in confidence, it does not control me. 
He says, I do not let that happen. Verse 14, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Time and time again, Paul reminds us that God calls us heavenward in Christ. In other words, God's call, which is the foundation of our faith, is at the front of our experience, in the middle of our experience, and at the end of our experience. God's call, by the way, is always effective. And so never reads Paul's words here like he and God are working this out so he gets into heaven. He is doing this because he's in relationship. God's call is all it took for Paul. But out of that life is now a conformed own life. A life that is about the one that called him, that he would say will come to full realization, not in spring, but in summer. Now, so far Paul has described the Christian life, his own walk, in the light of what is to come. The average Christian is called to live one's life as a runner. That is, Paul is trying to show us not what the prize always looks like, but actually what the runner looks like. The runner, in the end, is not distracted by good, bad, great, or evil things. The runner has a full, confident grip on their future. And lastly, the prize, very interesting, is Jesus. The prize is not heaven or a new earth. The prize is not some mansion. The prize is not even eternal life. The prize for Christians is Jesus. Our movement is foundationally relationship-centered. And Paul would remind us that we are running our race not just to get eternal life or to go to a new heavens and a new earth where God recreates all things to make them right. We run our race because we cannot wait to see Jesus. In verse 15, he says, All of us then who are mature should take a view of such things, and if on some point you think differently... That too, God will make clear to you. I love that. Mm, It's great. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, Paul basically says, everything I've written to you so far, chapter one, two, and three, to this point in the letter, that's what a mature Christian looks like. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, decades, days, months. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter your gender, your race, your background. The simple declaration Paul would give you this morning is you can actually sit down and evaluate your maturity as a Christian based on what you agree with so far that he's written in Philippians 1, 2, and 3, and if you follow it through in your life. Your maturity is based on applying truth, not knowing it. Lots of us here are older in the faith, but not mature. And then Paul comes along and says, you know what? The truth is, I've done this for a while. I know some of you just aren't going to agree with me yet. And I'm good with that. He says, some of you are going to be people that are tempted to perfectionism. Some of you are actually being tempted, he'd say this to his audience, to to hang out with those false teachers I confronted last week, those Judaizers. Some of you still think it's your right in a local church to argue and grumble all the time. Because you're right and everyone else is wrong. And it's your right to do it. That's fine, he says. All good. In time, God's going to have a conversation with you. God bless you. Have a great day. Hugs. I'm out. Right? Now, what's really interesting about Paul is this. Now, Paul, we know this. Paul is, is an intense guy. He can be a little bit of a pit bull in the right sense. But what we catch here is a theme that's really neglected. One person put it this way. If you've done church for a while, a long while, listen real carefully at this moment. This passage demonstrates, one wrote, the simple but often neglected principle that, and here it is, we should not expect every believer to be fully mature. Wow, shock. 
As long as the church is composed of fallible people, it will include some people who try the patience of mature Christians. And when this happens, interestingly, Paul's example shows us that we should actually trust people into God's care and not allow our disagreements with them to disrupt the church's unity. This writhes against the North American notion that we are all leaders, we all must have a say, and we all the time, 24-7, must give our view. Paul turns around and says, you know what? Some of you aren't going to get this for a while, and that's fine. I'm going to talk to you about it. I've been doing that. But by the way, I am going to, in my heart, systematically give you over to God, and I'm going to let him have a conversation with you. How much more unity? How would our congregational meetings be different? How would our inner walk be different? How would our connect groups be different if this was applied? Paul says, listen, verse 16. Let's live up to what we've already all obtained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. He says, look, I'm following after Jesus. I'm not perfect, but use me as a model because I'm working this through. Now, at that moment, I thought Paul would sort of stop, but he doesn't. Suddenly in the passage, things change. Paul feels the great need to address another group that could actually tear the joy right out of the church. Now, last week we dealt with a group of false teachers that theologians called Judaizers, remember? They were very early Jews that taught that Jesus was the Son of God. They believed it. They believed Jesus was the Messiah. But they also started teaching that any non-Jew to become a Christian had to love Jesus, meet Jesus, and become fully religious and Jewish, and then you'd become a Christian. So it was Jesus plus the law equals Christianity. Well, Paul, as we saw, dealt with that emphatically, shot that right down. He would say, in summary, it's never Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus, period. But now he needs to deal with another group because Paul understands the dynamics of people. And he says, look, there's another group among you or possibly could come among you that actually understand they don't need to become deeply religious to know Jesus. They have the opposite problem. They come along and say, I'm in Jesus, I'm saved, I'm loved, I'm free, I can, I can walk in freedom, I've got my fire insurance, you know, and I can do anything I want. I'm free. God has called me and elected me, so I'm in. I can live, I am free. I can divorce my spiritual walk from how I think. I can divorce my spiritual for walk from how I act. He says in verse 18, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now listen to this, please, this morning. For us who are Christians, when we read verse 18, our instinct is to read this verse and say, see, that's talking about everyone outside of the church. Enemies of the cross, people who belong to another religion, people who invent their own religion, those who are atheists or agnostics or, or whatever, and we fill in the blank. Well, guess what? Paul comes along and says, no, nope, not at all. Actually, all the people I'm referring to in this verse are inside the church. These are people that would call themselves Christians and would go to connect groups and would come to church, but they don't really know Jesus. Now, this should be a moment of uncomfortability for us. Because Paul actually calls people who regularly come to church enemies of the cross. They're not people that had salvation. They think they have salvation and they don't. Now, why is he calling them this? Well, here it is. They are living a life that is in direct opposition 
not only to the ethics of the cross, but to the very nature and meaning of the cross. So there's two groups he's addressing, the Judaizers and those who can just live any way they want. Everyone, hold on, here it goes. If you trust in what you do, how religious you are, if you trust in anything for salvation, but Jesus' work alone in your life, you at this moment are an enemy of the cross. Why? Because you don't actually believe that you need what Jesus did on the cross. You are declaring that, yes, I know Jesus said it's finished, but Jesus, don't you understand, I need to do something too to make sure that I'm in your good books and we all work this out, and I'm involved and you're involved, and Jesus says, enemy. Now to the other group, he comes along and says this, if you think you have embraced the cross of Christ and the work of Jesus in your heart, your life should show you've embraced him. If you use the cross as a cover to live any life you want, including sinning, then we have a problem. Now, we're not talking about struggling with sin. This is not a legalistic church, C4. It's not saying that we don't struggle. Many of us have deep spiritual struggles. Many of us sin all the time. All of us do. Many of us have lots of stuff to unpack in our emotional history. But here's the point. If you've met Jesus over time, your life will become more and more cross-centered. If your life does not change in any way or in very little ways, you have a question to ask about your life because you cannot encounter the living Jesus of heaven and earth and embrace his cross and not become cross-centered. It's impossible. Now notice something else here. It's really important. Paul's not angry here. Lots of people preach this angry. You know what I'm talking about? Urgh, throw thing, urgh. Paul is crying. He is broken. There's no glee here. There's no glee in this. Paul is a broken man, and he says, I weep over these people, not out of arrogance, but out of genuine brokenness. Here's a question for you this morning. Have you ever wept for those who do not know Jesus to meet him? Have you ever been so broken for a moment, even for Christians to be free or to truly know Christ? If Jesus wept and Paul wept, maybe if you've never wept for the lost or the broken, something's off. Paul comes and he says, I am broken. And then he takes a moment, though, to outline why he's so broken. He describes what these supposed Christians look like. He says in verse 19, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, and their mind is set on earthly things. Now, when I read this this week, I said, wow, what in the world is he talking about? Is he just saying that they like food too much? No. See, what was happening in Corinth is that Christians were hanging out in places where they weren't supposed to anymore. They were going to actually temples to worship idols, and they were eating feasts right in front uh, of, of these idols that, of course, we know Scripture is clear that behind the idol is demons. And Paul says, you can't do that. And he, he says, you know, you glory in shame, which is an old school way of saying you use your body sexually all the time by doing things I've told you never to do. Outside of heterosexual marriage, you cannot do this stuff. My lordship has more significance than your rights. He says, you glory in your shame. And he says, look, here's the real description. They have the name of Jesus, but their life is set on earthly things. Writing to another church, he writes what earthly things are in Colossians 3.2. He says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things below. 
Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, interesting, greed, hoarding money and wanting money in the wrong way, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways. In your life, you used to live. But now you must also get rid of your, you must also rid yourself of all these things. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. And don't lie to each other, he says, as a side note. Now, is this saying that if any of us participate in any of these things, that we're not really Christians? Well, no, I suppose we're all done if that's true. But what Paul is saying here is there is a group of people that claim the name of Jesus and come to church and read their Bibles, but they have no evidence of life change. And he says, you're an enemy of the cross because you do not access the power of the cross. We cannot do anything we feel like as Christians. We cannot grab or give in or touch or participate anything that attracts our fancy or that the world says is just fine. We are not free to sin as Christians. We are free to live in Christ. And by the way, Paul would say our identity, our calling, our job description, our heart, our lives are not bound and now the way the world works. He says we are not called to be marked by earthly things. Why? Verse 20. Because our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is so unbelievably significant. Yes, we are Canadians. Some of you watching are Americans, or I don't know, you're English or, or French, whatever. Uh, yes, we live in a great country. Canada is an exceptional country. For someone who's grown up around the world and seen war and seen also poverty, this country is profound. But let me declare this publicly this morning. Though I'm a Canadian citizen, though I love this country, my true citizenship is not in Ottawa. It's in heaven. One of the great problems in the North American church is we get our national pride mixed up with our faith. Run from that. It becomes an idol. My citizenship and your citizenship is in heaven. That's why he said back in Philippians 127, whatever happens, remember, conduct yourself. The word conduct is passport, citizenship. Citizen yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says, look, you're in Philippi. It's a really famous city. I know that you love being Roman citizens, but guess what? Your true citizenship is in heaven. And though Roman culture has good aspects, it has terrible aspects, run for those things. Run from those things that continually violate your true citizenship. He says, we eagerly, verse 20, await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power, by that power, enables him to bring everything under his control, that's an amen, will transform our lowly bodies so they can be, so they will be like his glorious body. Notice very quickly what Paul says about Jesus. He, grew, he, he grounds our faith in God's calling. He says our citizenship is not here, but somewhere else. And then he says, by the way, it is grounded in the return of this person named Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, he's Savior. He has saved us from sin. He has saved us from the demonic. He has saved us from death. He has saved us from ourselves. He is also Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the chosen one. But then I love this. And he says, he is also Lord. Now, to two audiences, this means two very different things. When you say Lord in Hebrew, it's the same word for God. Paul is declaring that Jesus, the anointed one, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in flesh. To the Greek reader, when they hear Lord, they think of Caesar. 
And Paul is coming along and saying, oh, I know that there's a Caesar and he's a grand man, but by the way, there is a greater Lord, a greater Caesar, something much more significant than any leader that has ever lived, any demon that has power, any angel that has power, any person of great invention or clout. Let me tell you, his name is Jesus. And we await his coming back. That's why Paul would say in Philippians 3, 9, Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's an amen moment, by the way. Awesome. He says we await the Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who's going to transform our lowly bodies so we will be, so they will be like his glorious body. Paul would say, listen, we have not arrived at our ultimate goal. And fully understanding that Jesus is going to come back, also catch this, he says, the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead will be done in and over us, and we will be physically raised from the dead in the fullest form into eternal life. Just like Jesus was given a transformed, glorious body, so every one of us that puts our trust in Jesus will have that same experience. When's the last time you thank Jesus for your coming resurrection? It's the only thing that distinguishes us in this room from the rest of the world. Athanasius, the great church father, so long ago wrote these words, Jesus seeing the ravaging effects of sin on the human race, moved, I love it, with compassion for our limitation. He took himself a body, a body even like our own, thus taking a body like our own because all our bodies were liable to the corruption of death. He surrendered his body to death in place of all of us and offered it back to the Father. He, he did this out of sheer love for us so that in his death we might all die and the law of death would be abolished because when he had fulfilled in his body that for which it was appointed, he had voided the power of of death for humanity. Paul ends this section by saying in, in Philippians 4.1, Therefore, brothers and therefore, sisters, you whom I love and I long for, you're my joy and my crown. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, my dear friends. The future, he says, belongs to those who persevere. Those who press on, those whose confidence is bound in Jesus, his work and his coming again. He says, Christian, no matter how much money you have or do not have, no matter if you're sick or not sick, whether you're married to a Christian or you're struggling because you're not married to a Christian, whether you're single or divorced, whoever you are, wherever you are, walk in joy, walk in freedom. God has called you and we know he's coming back. And at one point in the future, we will be fully healed, fully restored, and we will be fully made right by the resurrection. And as we live in spring and we wait for summer, we need to stand firm because our citizenship is in heaven. Now, the question is this morning for you, myself, and the many of you online, what would the living Jesus say to us at this moment? Well, for some of you, You've had a very scary experience, or you're about to have one right now. Some of you think that you live in spring and summer, but you don't. You're in winter. Some of you who attend C4 Church, or virtually all the time, you're actually an enemy of the cross. 
And let me declare to you again today, with no judgment, just out of the word of God, if you think you have arrived completely spiritually, you're an enemy of the cross. If you believe that you need to earn your right into heaven, if you believe that you are part of what God is going to do to save you, I'm not talking about working out your salvation in the sense of walking with Jesus, but if you believe it's you and Jesus working together to get in, you're an enemy of the cross. You that trust in you, you that put your ultimate trust in your education or your money or your history or your race or your past achievements, you who put your whole life into your looks or your good acts or your religious ideas or your philosophy or your worldview, uh, you that trust in you or what you do, you that say in your quiet moments, I know I'm going to be okay even if I die because when I get to heaven, God's going to look and see how good I was. Be warned this morning. Because what you put ultimate trust in will determine if you have joy in this life, if you meet the living God in this life, and will determine if you know him eternally forever. If you ever buy into the notion of religion, which is I will be good enough for God, you're an enemy of the cross. Why? Because God hates you? No. Because the cross declares that humanity doesn't have it in itself to get salvation. That's why Jesus came and died a death that we deserve and was physically raised from the dead and took our place. You're an enemy of the cross because you trust in you, not in him. You're also an enemy of the cross if you're in the opposite camp. camp. If you call yourself a Christian and you do all the Christian things, but you live your life any way you want, you're an enemy of the cross. Because you are accessing a supposed freedom you were never given. Do you live spiritually divorced in your own life? Do you think that you can think one way and act another way? The gospel is very clear that over time, a pattern of conduct is connected to us encountering Jesus. Do you name the name of Jesus this morning, but your life doesn't reflect the cross at all? Do you think or say, well, I know I'm wrong, but I'm covered, or I just don't care, or I'm too tired, Jesus, or too busy, or I can just do what I want because it's my right, or God didn't help me out when I thought he was going to help me out, so I'm going to live life on my own terms, or God didn't show up when I needed him, so fine, I'll just do this. Be careful. If your life, and this is again, let me say this for the third time, if your life is marked by, your identity is not struggling with, but your identity is in sexual immorality, impurity, and lust. Lust isn't just sexual. You can lust after anything. Desire, evil desires, greed. If your life is marked at its core by anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and lying, God comes to you today, and he's not angry, and he's not yelling at you, but he is saying, you are an enemy of the cross because you live life like, like I said last week, like a Christian atheist. You believe right things, but you have no power in your life, no effect in your life. My love does not penetrate your heart because if it did, you would be living a radically different, cross-centered, other-person life because our love would be so real and connected. So here's the question for some of you this morning. Are you willing to humble yourself Knowing that God is a God of love. Nikki sang that so beautifully and declared it. Our God is a God of love. And declare yourself 
an enemy and say, I want to be friend. I will not trust in myself or my good works. Or Lord Jesus, forgive me for naming the name of Jesus, but never really following after or knowing him. One of the greatest threats to our movement is not a blackening culture that's getting more and more dark. That's actually good for us, by the way. The darker it gets, the more light shines. Everyone breathe. It's good that we live in the culture we live in. There's no, I don't know where the line is. We all know where the line is. The real issue is many of us are nominal Christians, where we grew up in a Christian family or we're Christian because the island we come from or the race we come from, you know that, we're all Christians there or the country you've immigrated. No, no. Christianity is an encounter with the living Jesus. God comes to some of you today in love and says you're actually in winter, but I want to give you spring. And I'll give you a moment to deal with that in, in a second. Now, lots of us here this morning are going, that's not me. I've had that conversation. It's genuine. So it's spring. What do I do? Well, here it is. For us who are in spring, waiting for summer, I want to say a few words. Joy is produced in our walk when we're sure of our calling and our past does not own us. Please hear this. Please. Spirit of God, I ask you to come right now in great power. Joy is produced in an average Christian life. When your calling is sure and your past does not own you. Paul comes and says in 310, right? I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to participate in his sufferings. I want to die like him. I want resurrection. Now we read that and some of us go, I will never be that. And my response to you would be, okay. Do you understand at the core of your being that Jesus Christ has taken hold of you? You will have joy, you will run the race, you will suffer, you will forgive others, you will live for him if you live your life out of the understanding that you really have been called. If you do not ground your Christian walk in his calling, you'll always be left up with you. And if you're left up with you, you always fail. One of the great foundations we've lost in the church is connecting our joy to his calling, not our work. So if you want joy as you live out in spring, never forget Paul explicitly says every day, get up and declare, I have been called and it wasn't my option. He showed up and I'm very thankful. Joy will be found there. And then once you know you've been called, the second thing clicks in very quickly. Paul would declare it, the Spirit of God declares it through his word, your past cannot be your master. Now this is another uh uh-oh moment for a lot of us. This is when we go, you know, it's social aid time. Sorry, not yet. You know, I'm tired and out. Too bad. No, honestly, catch it, please. So many of us in this room do not have joy in our Christian walk because our past is bigger than the God we worship. Some of us are sitting here And years later, we are regretting what we have done to others or what others have done to us. We are filled with guilt and shame. We come and do church every week and we're faithful, but there's no joy in us. Why? Because we have never come to the point where we actually have applied the forgiveness of Jesus in our life. He's forgiven us, but we haven't forgiven ourselves. Or he's forgiven us, but we haven't forgiven another. Paul comes and says, do how desperate are you for joy? How strong do you want spring in your life? Okay, he says, then your past sin cannot be your master any longer. Say yes to what Jesus has done over you. 
And then to another group, he would come and say, oh, some of you have been faithful for so long in Jesus' name. You have loved Jesus. You have helped lead the church. You've done this in Jesus' name. You served. You were a leader, and you can fill in the blank. But then something's happened to you. Because of life, you've just stopped. Paul would come and say, you may never rest on your past spiritual laurels or experience. There is no, those were the good old days when, for our movement. If you are resting on what you did in 2005 or 1999 or 1980 or 1970 or 60, oh, I used to lead people to Jesus or I used to be a leader in the church or I I used to help. No, just praise God for that. Who did you do it for? You or Jesus? And if you did it for Jesus, say, oh, Jesus, it was so wonderful to serve you this way. And then the next thing is, now how do I serve you today, no matter what it looks like? Some of you are saying, fine, John, easy, you're 36. You get to say that. You haven't lived my life. Agreed. But Jesus knows better than you and me. Some of you need to just stop living in your good spiritual past and say to Jesus, now what today? And you'll have joy again. And your family and friends will look at you and go, what happened to you? And you'll go, well, you know, Jesus showed up again. It's been a long time. To some, you're in winter. To some of us, we're in spring. And to all of us, let me end with summer. We're all called to live knowing that summer's coming. It was Gordon Fee who wrote these words. Hear them, please. They're a little complex, but they're needed to end. He says, This singular and passionate focus on the future coming of Jesus, which Paul clearly intends as our model, gets lost in many good churches. And for a whole variety of reasons, maybe this is you. We live in a scientific age, and actually some of us are embarrassed to talk about the end of the world. You know, it's... Yeah, we're embarrassed. In a world come of age, only some of us think messed up, oppressed people think about the end. You know, they're weak, so they need something to think about. In a fluent age, we all honestly ask, well, who needs it? But Paul's voice should not be muffled so quickly or easily. For racers who by their very nature are oriented to the future, who have no real future to look forward to, here is a striking and powerful statement to the Christian movement. The tragedy, everyone ready? The tragedy that attends the rather thoroughgoing loss of hope in Western culture is that we're trying to make today heaven. Let me say that again. We're trying to make today eternal. Hence, North American Christians in particular, or North Americans in general, are the most death-denying culture in the history of the human race. How can you explain the cosmetic surgery becoming a multi-billion dollar industry unless, of course, we believe this is it? I keep saying this. People are like, oh, John, you're going bald. I'm like, I know, but the resurrection's coming. I'm good. (laughs) I'm serious about that. I'm good. Wait until you see my locks. Wow. Don't laugh. I'm here. I will have locks in heaven. No, I'm joking. I don't really care. The person writes, in the midst of such banal hopelessness, the believer in Jesus who recognizes Christ as the beginning and end of all things meaningful needs to be reminded again and to think in terms of sharing with the world that God's purposes for his creation aren't finished yet. 
And when Jesus comes back, they will be consummated. Indeed, to deny the consummation is to deny what is the essential to the meaningful, anything meaningful in the Christian faith. Ready? Here it is. Here's the uh uh-oh. Paul finds life meaningful precisely because he sees the future with the clearest clarity. So many of us are not having meaningful Christian lives because we don't believe Jesus is really coming back. Though we believe it, we don't. Paul says, I know what's coming. I know what's coming. How can I not have meaning in this life? He roots his present in the future. He says, summer is coming. Our citizenship is in heaven. Jesus' resurrection is true. We're going to be like him. He says, call, he calls us, stand firm. We're called to eagerly wait for Jesus. Live and watch for Jesus' return. He says, look, I want you to know Christ. I want you to focus on the goal. Run the race. Take hold. Tell others, this is not the end. This is not all that's going to be. Share the good news of life and joy that we are living in spring. You don't have to be bound in winter. And there is a summer coming that we only somewhat can imagine, but we do know that there will be no more war, death, suffering, abuse, fill in the blank. Why? Because Jesus is going to restore the world back to actually what it was in Eden. Paul comes and says to our community, some of you in winter repent and find friendship. He says to all of us that are in spring, root yourself in calling and abandon your past in the right way. And then Enzin says, you must live like Jesus is coming back. So here's what we're going to do. Nikki's going to come back with the team. And instead of just hearing a sermon, I want to give you a chance to respond in a few ways. So just, I'd like you to do this. And I I say this uh, in the morning sometimes, a lot in the evening. I'd like you to get in a posture of response. And again, maybe I did this last week. A posture of response in the Bible can be all sorts of things. You can kneel, you can cover your face, you can stand, you can sit, you can open your arms because when we raise our hands to God, it's actually a symbol of being open to his encouragement or rebuke. Any way you need to. I know we're Canadians and we're very, you know, conservative, so we don't want to move. We just sort of look at each other. But you're about to talk to the living God. So get in a posture, no matter who you are or your age. And then let's take a moment to pray through what we've heard. And then we'll end with a response in worship. So here's what we'd like to say to you, Jesus, this morning. Again, thank you for your word. Thanks for your love for us. Thanks that you care for us. Thank you that, you know, you're not some angry thug upstairs, but you're a father who deeply loves us. Thanks for Paul's life uh, and what you did. Thanks for grabbing Paul. We're sitting here today because of him. And here's some of our prayers. So number one, if you're in winter... And you've had the, oh my goodness moment, almost the horrific experience. You went, oh, I think I might be an enemy of the very person I thought I knew. Pray this prayer. Pray it sincerely. Uh, Jesus, I want to admit right now that I actually am an enemy of yours, and I thought I was your friend. Uh, For some of you, pray this. I've worked my whole life to impress you. I've said in my quiet moments, I have to do lots to make sure I'm okay. And I'm going to get in. And by doing that, I have actually violated what you did for me. And I repent. And I want your friendship. And I want to truly know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I trust in Jesus' work and not my own. Help me to do things that are good because I love you, not because I need to earn your love. For others of you, you need to say, oh, Jesus, forgive me. I have done church for days, months, or years. 
I've marked your name. I've called myself a Christian in private or public, but I'm not one of those Christians. I've lived my life any way I want to. And I ask forgiveness and I repent of my sin right now. Forgive me for living a life without Jesus. Forgive me for living a life without the power of the cross. I willingly say to Jesus, come and be my Savior and my King and my Lord. I embrace what the cross is about. Come and make me a person of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I repent for living one way and saying something else. I want my words to match my life. I want to be your friend. For others of you, you need to simply say this because you live in spring. I have been called. Lord Jesus, I pray over those people that have just said that, that it would go deep. Spirit of God, deep in them so they know that they know that they know that they are in your hand and they can't get out. For others of us, we need to pray this. Lord, forgive me for having my past control my now. Holy Spirit, I'd ask you right now here and online to begin to do this. Would you speak to people right now about the sins that they still go back to or think about or ruminate about, done against themselves or what they've done to others? that have power in their life. Holy Spirit, I'd ask you right now to show them these. Okay, you see them in your mind? All right. Jesus declares you are forgiven. I pray that the power of these past actions that have already been forgiven would no longer control these people's present. God, I pray you'd also now bring up in people's minds good things they've done in Jesus' name in the past, but that they're relying on now. I want to thank you, Jesus, for all the images that just came up here and online. I want to thank you for everything that was done in your name back then, the good things that are going to last into eternity, but I now pray you'd set people free from relying on those or looking back at those, and I pray you'd set them free now to begin to live now in spring, at this moment in spring. I pray for some renewal in some people in this church. A deep new day where the past is cherished, but it is not owned. And lastly, I pray for myself as a fellow journeyer and all of us gathered that we would live like Jesus is coming back. Not being obsessed about the future, but knowing its right place in our life. We ask this in the name of the Father who calls us, the Son who loves us eternally, the Spirit that makes us like Christ and will actually be our seal until Jesus returns. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, carotherscreek.ca.